Our sermon is entitled, How Great is Our God? That's the sermon series, and this morning we're looking at the attribute, the independence of God. And so, as I told, mentioned last week, we're starting a new sermon series, and we're going to be looking at a variety of attributes. Some of those are incommunicable, meaning that those attributes do not translate to us personally, uh, for instance, the independence of God. And then some of them are communicable. And so, for instance, the intelligence of God or the benevolence of God, those are things that are communicated to us, which means those are things that we too can express as well. And so that's what we're going to be looking at over the course of the next several weeks. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the independence of God. Now, when our kids turn 16, they imagine that they will have true independence, right? You might be able to think back to when you were 16 and imagine that day when you got that little card, your driver's license, and may I just add that it's not plural, okay? It's one license, mom. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I think there's something about Indiana and pluralizing licenses, okay? But when you were 16, you got your driver's license, and all of a sudden now you're free, right? They're going to have freedom, sort of like William Wallace in the movie Braveheart. At least that's what they imagine. That as soon as they get those keys and they put them in the ignition, they will forever be on their own. But then as they soon understand is that they still have to come home. A home that you paid for. And they eat your food. And by the way, we're happy that they have found some independence. Because then we don't have to deal with them as much, right? We get a little bit of a break. Where are the kids? Do I have to go pick them up? No, they got their own car. But they imagine independence, but the, re the realization is they are still very dependent upon their family, upon their parents, upon their friends. Because independence, from a human perspective, is a mirage. It's not real. And when we become adults, we now count ourselves as independent. We have our own jobs, we have our own bills, our own homes, hopefully, and our own responsibilities. But again, true independence is a mirage. Why is that? Because most of us still depend on an employer or on a spouse or on friends and family and even our parents from time to time. And even if we are off the grid and in total solitude in the Canadian tundra, you are still going to be depending on God to give you your next breath. Being dependent on others does not make you and I weak. It makes us human. We were created for community, the right communities, I should add. But our dependency does make us vulnerable, and that's okay. However, God is not human. God does not follow the same rules. Luke recounts the story of Paul speaking to the men and women of the Areopagus in, in Acts 17. And Paul says this, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, 
nor is he served by human hands as made from one man, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So this first attribute of God that we're going to be talking about today is the independence of God. And Wayne Grudem, the systematic theologian from the uh, Phoenix Seminary, describes this attribute as this, is that God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. Yet we and the rest of creation can glorify Him and bring Him joy. So to understand who our God truly is, we need to first understand that our God is dependent upon no one or nothing but himself. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do give you praise this morning and we give you all the glory and we pray that we would find our joy and our sufficiency in you, Lord. Father, I pray that in the midst of all that this world tries to give us, tries to entice us with, Lord, that we will find our contentment in the blessings that you have bestowed upon us, namely and mainly in Christ Jesus, that we understand, we accept, and we have affection for the gospel of Jesus Christ, this good news that tells us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. May we never forget that. And may, as we walk through this text, as we walk, as we hear this message, as I preach this message, myself included, may our affections be stirred for you, for the uncreated one, for a holy God who is wonderful and mighty. Lord, we ask this in your son's precious name. Amen. Our first point this morning is God's little g made by human hands. The Romans were known to be a very religious group. Now, when I say Romans, I'm referring to first century Rome. Okay, so if you remember your church history, the Israelites in the uh, 6th century BC were a divided kingdom ruling over Israel and Judah. And then the Babylonians came in conquered Israel and Judah and took them off to Babylon for about 70 years until the Persians, the Medo-Persians, came in and they sacked Babylon, crushing them, a mighty nation at that time, and brought them back to their homeland. But at that time, Israel was no longer of their own independence. They were dependent upon this nation who had freed them. And then fairly soon after that, in the mid-3rd century, we have the Greeks who then sacked the Persians and now the Israelites are under Greek rule. And then not too long later, we have the Romans who sack everybody and have the most expansive kingdom and empire that we have known to date. It was massive. And they were a very religious group. But they were not monotheists. And so for the kids in here, a monotheist is an individual who believes in one God. But rather, the Romans were polytheists. They believed in many gods. They were pagan. 
The Romans, in fact, had 12 major gods whom we get the name of many of our planets, like Neptune and Mercury, Uranus. All of these different planets were named after these gods, but they also had numerous minor gods and goddesses. And in Roman culture, it was practiced to construct these deities or these idols that humans would make by hand and then they would worship these idols. These statues were made of all sorts of earthly materials. They were made of wood, stone, and even precious metals. But these idols would rust and they would decay. Many of these statues would be weathered by elements, which means that they would have to be cared for by human hands. They would have to be put in temples in order to be protected. It sounds like a mighty God indeed that gets a little bit roughed up by some wind and rain, right? These idols were not just representations of the deities, but they were in fact extensions of the deities themselves. Therefore, they had to be maintained. Now furthermore, like what was referred in this passage, these Romans erected an idol to an unknown god. They erected this idol to an unknown god, and the hypothesis was that considering that there were so many different gods and goddesses that they were indebted to, it would make sense that they forgot one, that they may have missed one. There might be a god or goddess out there that they forgot and that they neglected, and so what, they, what do they do? They cover their basis, right? So they build another idol, and they say this is the idol to the unknown god. Smart move if you're a pagan. Now, before we scoff at the Romans, because that's easy to do, right? We scoff and we laugh and we jest at these polytheists for what, they, for what we believe to be silly. We need to be really careful because, remember, the Israelites, very quickly after they were relieved from their captivity in the Exodus from the Egyptians, constructed a golden calf to worship. The Hindus have a massive temple in the state of Kentucky. I've been there. It's a massive temple in Kentucky with the most ornate deities you've ever seen. It's off to the side, sort of in the woods, and when you pull up to the gates, it is a massive construction. And when you go in, there are these massive um, deities. That's exactly what they call them. They are the gods, and there are people in there worshiping and sacrificing to all of these deities, providing, pr- providing incense and floral arrangements and food items, all of these things to these deities. And many Christians, even in Kentucky, have shrines built. Yes, they do. They have shrines built to their favorite sports team, possibly, right? That's what we do, right? And you may say, well, that's just, you know, to celebrate, just to celebrate, you know, that team or something like that. And it's, we get excited. I've had that too as well. But how many of y'all, now nobody lie now, okay? It's Saturday and it's game day, all right? And all of a sudden, what do you do? You put on that sweatshirt that you haven't washed all season because it has what? It's lucky, okay? It's lucky sweatshirt. It's that right sweatshirt, right? You sit in the same chair because the team knows it. The team knows that as soon as they get on that hardwood hard or out on that field, they know Debbie Hawkinsmith, she's wearing that sweatshirt. She is wearing that sweatshirt. She is sitting in her armchair, and she is eating the same Fritos chili that she eats every game day. I made that last part up. But here's the deal, okay? <laughs> All right. We do that 
because we're superstitious. We don't like to admit it. You know, we're kind of like Michael Scott. We're not superstitious. We're just a little stitious, right? But no, we're superstitious, and we believe that somehow our activity is going to bring our team victory. Now, here's the thing. I'm as patriotic as it comes when it comes to sports. But the reality is this, is that that kind of behavior is not too far off some of the behaviors that the Romans were doing. The reality is that in all of these pagan religions, all of these gods and goddesses have deficiencies and dependencies. They can be hurt, they can be weakened, they, can be main, they have to be maintained by human hands. And finally, not all of these gods and goddesses are even known. And these gods and goddesses had a beginning, and many of them came to an end. These gods do not have self-sufficiency or independence. What kind of god needs human hands to maintain them? Well, not our God, not the one true God. Paul states this, again from Acts 17, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Our God is not dependent on anyone or anything. He does not need a statue built by human hands. He does not need a temple or a home constructed by human hands. He does not need, nor is he intimidated by, other gods or goddesses. Our triune God, one God in three persons, stands alone in all creation. Stands alone. Our God was not created. This is what it means by the fact that our God is independent. Number one, our God is not created. You see, Zeus, all right, Zeus was created. Now, you may not know Roman mythology, okay? So I'm going to share just a little bit with you to kind of give you a little bit of background. Zeus was created by his father, Kronos, who was fathered by Uranus, who was created by Gaia, who was one of several deities. It just keeps going back and back and back. And it even says in Roman mythology that she was created. But our God does not have a beginning, and He will never have an end. Numerous mythologies tell of stories of gods and goddesses being defeated and killed, often in gruesome ways. And for instance, Kronos was murdered by Zeus, his own son, when Zeus gutted Kronos to retrieve his siblings. Kronos was a guy. A little gender confusion all the way back then, right? Our God is the uncreated one. If you push a humanist or an evolutionist or an atheistic cosmologist to their limit, they will have to admit that the universe has an unexplained beginning, unexplained to them. They have to. They have to say that there's a beginning. In order to follow physical, natural law, they would say something had to have a beginning. This stuff could not just appear out of nothing. It had to have a beginning or it defies natural law. They don't have an explanation for that. They have some really cute hypotheses, though. All right? That does not sound too far-fetched, 
if you live in the world of Harry Potter. But we do not live in the world of Harry Potter, much to my son's chagrin. See, the reality is we do have an explanation for this. And it's that we serve a God who created all things. And the humanist may say, well, then who created God? He's God. There was no need for Him to be created because He always was. That's the very essence of His proper name, Yahweh. I am who I am. I have always been, I am, and I always will be. There is no beginning, there is no end to me. I rhymed, I didn't even mean to. Okay, here's the idea behind this. Our God is self-sufficient in every way. Because we know that the beginning was with God who made the world and everything in it. And in addition, our God stands out of time, space, and history. He is not defined by our dimensions. He's not defined by those. Our God is outside of time. Why is that? Because He created it. He's outside of our length, of our height, of our breadth. Our God is incomprehensible if we try to define Him, define him by our own measurements. It's not as if you can go get the biggest ruler that you can find and measure our God. You'll never find Him. You'll never find it. Why is that? Because our God measures our universe in the palm of His hand. We don't do the measuring God does. Why? Because He is our Creator. He is not confined to our dimensions. Our God is both intimate and transcendent. He is both personal and He is mysterious. Our God does not answer to anyone or anything. He is not dependent upon sustenance or our praise. Let's look at the psalm by Asaph in Psalm 50. It's a little bit long, but just follow with me here. This is what the psalmist writes. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Our, out of Zion, the perfections of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, He does not keep silent. Before, before Him is a devouring fire, around Him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that He may judge His people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare His righteousness, for God Himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all the moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right you have to recite my statutes or to make or take my covenant on your lips. For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought 
that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charges before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. I really enjoy the part by the psalmist when he says, if I was hungry, I would not tell you. I don't need your bulls. I don't need your goats like these other idols. What do I need? What do I want? May I say this? I want thanksgiving. I want you to thank me for what I've already given you. Thank me with your life. Our God is not dependent on anyone. Does Psalm 50, does that portray a God who is dependent on anything? Nothing. And finally, our God is not unknown. He has made Himself known. He has revealed Himself through creation. He has revealed Himself through His Word. And He has revealed Himself through His Son, Jesus Christ. And this is where the rubber meets the road, as they say. Because this, this is where many in the world like to dispute, like to dispute that we are different than some of these other pagan religions. But I want to put that to bed. Because Jesus is the God made known. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 17, He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. That is Paul speaking of Jesus. Now, to me, that does not sound like Jesus is just some other guy. It sounds as if Jesus is a creator God. It seems as if the Father spoke and the Son creates. It seems as if everything in our midst is held together by Christ. He is not just our Redeemer. He is our Sustainer. And when I say Sustainer, I don't just mean that He maintains your salvation. I mean He maintains you. If it were not for Christ, you would fly apart at the seams. You'd be a mess of elements and atoms and bones and muscles flailed about. But because of Christ... He holds us together to maintain the integrity that God the Father has ordained in His providence. Does that passage sound like a God who is dependent upon anything? I know that we can get in the mud talking about the Trinity. I understand that. It is and will always be somewhat of a mystery. How can we have one God, but in three persons? Well, this is exactly how it happens, because God said so. 
That's why. God said so. So in your free time, when you pull out all your books in the Bible and all these things, and you are going to try to wrestle with this concept of the Trinity, I'm going to come up with the perfect analogy. I'm going to come up with the perfect metaphor. I'm going to come up with the perfect way of explaining the Trinity. I'm just going to tell you, we've been on the face of the earth many, many years, and no one's come up with it yet. Why? Because it's a mystery. We serve one God in three persons, and it will be a mystery until we come face to face with Jesus himself. And then I still don't even know if we'll completely understand it, because it doesn't mean that our minds are going to be working 100% perfectly, and we are not going to be God. We will still be people. But let me just wrestle with this for a minute, because I want to clarify something that might be confusing, especially for our young people. Because before I reference the fact that pagan gods and goddesses are created, need sustenance, and can be hurt and can be even killed, and then I professed that our God is not susceptible to these mundane challenges, and then I said... Biblically, that Jesus is God. I don't think any Orthodox Christian would dispute me on any of that. But what about Jesus? This is what the world will say. What about Jesus? Wasn't he born? And Paul said he was firstborn, right? John says the only begotten Son of God. Wasn't he born? Didn't he eat and drink? Wasn't he hurt? Didn't he die? I hope so. Because the church of Jesus Christ depends upon all this. The answer to these questions is yes. In fact, the answer to these questions is an emphatic yes. Did Jesus suffer? Yes. Did Jesus get hungry? Yes. Did he get thirsty? Yes. Did Jesus Jesus fall ill? It says in, in the Word that Jesus knows every element of suffering that we have dealt with. He experienced all of our humanity outside of sin. And if so, what makes him different than a pagan god or goddess? What makes him different? Well, first is this. Jesus did not become the Son of God. That's important. Jesus did not become the Son of God. He has always been the Son of God. He, like the Father and the Spirit, has always been. There has never been a moment in all of eternity when Christ was not. He has always been. He has not always been incarnate or in the flesh, but He has always been. By God's grace, however, and His sovereign providence, Christ became the incarnate Son of God. At the moment of his incarnation, incarnation, Jesus was God with two natures, equally human and equally divine. Not half and half, 100%. On both. And you said, wait a minute, wait a minute, the math doesn't work. Stop dealing with math, okay? I'll be dealing with math tomorrow. I don't want to deal with it today, okay? And we're never going to work out that algebra. There's not going to. But this is the reality, is that Christ has always been the Son of God. He didn't become the Son of God when He was born to a Virgin Mary. He was a Son of God before that. The only change is that He became human. 
Secondly, Christ did not forsake His divine nature during the Incarnation. Many will argue that. Many will argue that for Christ who have suffered and dealt with the tragedies and the suffering that befell Him, He would have had to have forsaken His divine nature in order to become human. That's not what the Bible says. He did not forsake His divine nature during the Incarnation. Rather, He took on the human element that was necessary for our salvation. Therefore, when Christ was born, when He ate and drank, when He was beaten and killed, it was not His divine nature that suffered, but His human nature that took all of this on for our sake. This is very crucial. It was Christ's human nature, both dependent and vulnerable, that God required for our salvation. Yet at no time was the divine Son of God any less than 100% God. And you say, that it just I'm, I'm having trouble wrapping my mind around it. Okay. Well, you're not God, and I'm not God. There are some mysteries that just defy human intelligence. And so how do we move forward from this? How do we wrestle with this? Well, don't. Trust the Word. God revealed Himself in nature. He revealed Himself in Christ. But He also revealed Himself in His Word. And if God is faithful, His Word is faithful. And we trust His Word. It is a mystery. And that is the mystery of our God. He did not need to save us. He did not need our eternal company in heaven to be made complete. Let me restate that. God does not need you. He does not need you. He's perfectly fine without you. He is not deficient in any way. Rather, God wants you. He wants you. He wants to spend eternity with you. He wants to love you. He wants you to enjoy Him for all eternity. He has always been and will always be complete regardless of our presence. I believe that sometimes we think we are so important to God. I'll just put it, make it personal for a minute. I, if, if I wasn't here, I don't know what God would do. I, I don't know what God would do because I'm very important to God. He wouldn't have created me if I wasn't important to God, if, he, if God didn't need me somehow. I don't know what, if I don't do this, if I don't work long hours, I mean, what's God going to do, right? If I don't put in all, if I don't forsake all these other things and do this, I don't know what God's going to do. God's going to be missing out. Folks, if I drop dead in the next 30 seconds, God's still God. God's going to be just fine. God does not need us. He wants us. He wants to love us. He wants us to find joy in Him. But our sinful, prideful, self-centered minds calculate that as God needs. But God is not dependent on anybody, including us. God did not need us. 
he wanted us. His love, his kindness, his infinite grace has provided us a way to be reconciled to himself so that we can experience his glory for all eternity. So now, even though God does not need us, he wants us. How badly does God want us? He wants us. He wants us badly enough that he does send his only son to become human, to deal with all the pangs of humanity, to suffer and die on a cross for sinners who would deny and reject him, for sinners who would commit treason against a majestic king. So yesterday, I believe Christy can correct me if I'm wrong, yesterday they, they crowned King Charles now, I guess it is, is that right? Okay, so as long as TV's not lying to us, they crowned King Charles. Now, I saw some pictures because I was playing a video game yesterday, and that was more important than watching the coronation. But besides that, I saw some pictures on the news, and I was like, man, they really did that up. You know, I mean, he was wearing some flashy clothes, and they had him in some, like, carriage or something like that. I don't know, drawn by elves or something. I don't know. Anyway, the point being, they really did that up, right? And I'm sitting here thinking, that is the most famous king on the planet. And you know what? He's just a figurehead. That's all he is. But the king of kings is not a figurehead. The king of kings rules everything. Controls everything. Every single Thing in his universe God can measure in the palm of his hand yet he wanted you enough and loved you enough to send his son to die on a cross for you who is like our God who would go to the lengths that he has gone for a people who have rejected and impugned his holy name Certainly not pagan gods made of rock and wood. Certainly not shrines we build to our own greatness. Only a holy, almighty, uncreated, independent, wonderful, gracious, saving God who sent His only Son as our Redeemer. May we forever place our trust in Him. And to Him be the glory forever. Ever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you and we are so grateful for your kindness to us. And Lord, I ask that you would forgive us for when we think too highly of ourselves and we put ourselves on a pedestal that is rightly claimed by you. Father, I pray that if there are those in here who do not know Christ, who have not experienced that wonderful, wonderful experience of salvation, that they would turn their lives over to you. 
they would believe in the one and only saving name of Jesus. Father, I pray that you would wreck us until we submit. May we become like Christ. And then may we live as Christ. Seeing that dying is gain. Father, we love you. May we forever worship your marvelous name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?